Hello and welcome to the Mountain Gazette Library. I'm John Boozdar, and this week we proudly present the writings of Peter Cray, writer, editor, and expert on ski trends, education, and on snow innovation. Enjoy. Enjoy the great American West. What's left of it? October, on top of Half Dome, the whole Sierra was blanketed with a foot of snow. On. I had just entered a pleasantly empty subway car. And the next thing you know, you're in this calm, calm water. When you know who you are, when you get in touch with yourself, you don't have choices. So I think as a journalist right now, you have a lot of opportunity to really put across quality work that will stand out in a sea of a lot of garbage. If I've learned anything about life balance, it would be that the no balance balance is where it's at. (laughs) Episode 9, Part 2. The Ghost Hotel Ski Chile. Written by Peter Cray for Mountain Gazette 195. Mountain Gazette Library is proudly presented by Steo. Designed, developed, and tested at the base of the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Steo was founded to inspire connection with the outdoors through premium technical apparel for the epic and everyday. Learn more at Steo.com. S-T-I-O.com. Steo. Let the outside in. This episode is also brought to you in association with Gordini. Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family run and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956 to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first ever down and leather ski mitts to launching the industry's first dual layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands and now, our feet. Innovation is always done in the spirit of progress. See what drives our product and our passion at Gordini.com. G-O-R-D-I-N-I.com. It was in the disco that Hansen and I got to talking about ghosts. We drank that awful Tolmec tequila because it was the only tequila they had other than Cuervo Gold, which is the absolute worst tequila in the world and wondered why today's young skiers don't give more respect to the skiers who came before. Maybe it's because most of the guys they should be respecting and so much of the history is already dead, I offered. There's a lot of guys who were gone way too soon, Matt with his blue eyes and six day brown beard said, yeah, but surfing's had its fair share of great tragedies. And whenever I've been to some surf industry party where a superhero like Kelly Slater gets an award, he still spends five minutes praising the guys who inspired him and how much he owes to the pioneers. Hansen killed his shot and took a slug of the Escudo beer. He said, but you go to the ski events, it's just guys dropping F-bombs and talking about how hard they're going to party. He said, sometimes you're kind of surprised when somebody stands up and says something that's really worth listening to. And I said, yeah, fuck so-and-so, referring to a certain shredder who epitomized that peculiar strain of mountain-bred white kids who find some fake identity in gangster cool. He was so innovative and talented that he got paid fantastically well to hit huge jumps and spin across the sky like some jet-footed elf. But he also took any opportunity to jump on stage whenever there was a microphone and start screaming obscenities at the top of his lungs. Rapping over the music with white dreadlocks and a big belt buckle that just seemed to pull the waist of his pants closer 
to his knees yelling, fuck you, motherfuckers, fuck you. Absolute gold. If I remember right, that night Hanson and I made the same agreement I made with my friends Mike Horn and Jack Shaw. That because we wrote about snowboarding and skiing for a living, it seemed only proper and even a part of our lives duty for each of us to write a book about skiing that contains some particularly personal tale. Not more books about skiing as just a backdrop to a murder mystery or romance or frat boy comedy. Or some tripe that starts with the ringing of the phone. Ring, ring. It was Rad Basher, the craziest skier in the world. He wanted to know if I wanted to rip it up on the moon. But something we would be proud enough to put on our own bookshelf that would actually relate our hopes and fears and that kind of artistic element of the sport we all feel. Then gradually, there might be a cannon, a continuing source of inspiration to reach across the mountains in dog-eared volumes left in chalets, in backpacks at customs, and in the glove boxes of jeeps all over the world, so that other skiers would start writing their own books too. For his part, Hansen would start to write some of the most insightful and often tragic feature stories for Powder over the next few winters, including one titled, Why Do the Best Skiers Keep Dying? And I can't help but to think some of that insight was hard earned by our experience in South America. And again, when he, myself, and our friend Chris Denny easily could have been swept away by an avalanche in Andermatt, Switzerland the following year. I said to Hansen, you know, surfing even has its own music. It has its own clothes, but the coolest thing to ski music is reggae. Do you think that's original? Well, that in The Grateful Dead, Hansen said. Yeah, that's true. Lake of the Incas. The runs fell in long white ravines into the Lake of the Incas, a gorgeous ditch of glacial runoff and deep alpine meditations of the way that what heaven celebrities above can always get filtered down to the working man below. Snow to drink, snow to sow. So that we saw the hydroelectric dams and the drainage-based towns on our drive up. The very communities that, like us, were praying for some benevolence of weather, some regionally affirming religion of cult and clouds. The weather here seems to be pretty accurate about how it comes in off the coast. And we're looking at a good chance of snow on Wednesday or nothing at all, someone said. I can't remember who. Some runs were closed because ice didn't completely cover the lake that year and the lack of them hemmed us in, herded us into a wide open field that everyone follows, doing laps and feeling you were going to places that had already been used so that each spiral of ice across the water was easy to tell, a kind of rock crack on your windshield, as if something larger had fallen from the sky like an angel or a meteor. I still had some unfinished business to attend to from a trip with K2 skis a couple of years before, climbing that section of slope where I never went farther on that first day and was also kind of proud of as far as I did dare to go. The time when I was one less man out of a dozen early in the morning 
when I called out, I'm unhitched as it crumbled into the boot pack to spit coffee and eggs into the snow. There is still another 800 vertical feet to the rock entrance to the super sea where I surely would have balked if I hadn't stopped already. And I remember marveling at how it seems as if I had fallen off the back of the pack train going backwards almost as the others went higher still. When I hiked it again, Chris Davenport, the big mountain skier from Aspen who climbed and skied from the summit of all 54 Colorado's 1400 foot peaks in a single year, caught me under the rocks, where I'd stopped to catch my breath before clicking into my skis for the waves of solar baked powder below. He pointed up at the obvious curtain of granite above me to say he had seen lots of slides from those cliffs, a giant boulder rolling downhill and said, it wouldn't take long to get here if anything up there broke and fell. The client he was guiding was Siggy Rumpfhumper, who was relaunching Castle Skis with Davenport in Austria, something I would find out two seasons later on a trip to Solden. I snapped a photo of them, then slowly arched back to the Yellow Hotel. The marshal and I ordered conger eel chowder for lunch. It filled our bodies like warm oxygen, as deep and pure as miso, but with the strength and depth of fresh fish in the brew. It hit me like few foods ever have, like the Chateaubriand I ate at the Hockenham, or the pumpkin soup in Reed, Austria. So for a moment, I was overjoyed, deeply drunk and warm. And someone said I was sipping the broth of Chile and that Pablo Neruda had written a poem. I read it, Ode to Conger Chowder, and need to read it again. The savors of land and sea, that in this dish you may know heaven. And in the first taste understood it was worthy of such a succulent level of metaphor, of empanadas in Chilean wine, and the story of the famous Cabernet Sauvignon that had been clipped away to South America before a virus in France killed every vine and they thought that it was gone forever because it no longer existed in the Bordeaux. Of how when a Frenchman sipped it again in Val Pareso or on Kennedy Avenue in Santiago, he said, how long have you been storing this? And he nearly fell out of his chair when the reply was, it's fresh from last year. Neruda is God here. He is everywhere I go. In the conversations that start around the foot, the politics, and the views. He is the quote that is quoted and the poetry we find literally written on the walls of our Santiago boutique hotel. He is the savant of the film Postino, of the dying handsome actor in love with the beautiful dark-haired island girl who is really the muse who was what Americans remember, and the color of the sea and the constant waves like rolling windows. And I'm so inspired that I think that he is the first poet, the first author, that I will try to read in Spanish. Better than when I bought the Italian history of St. Francis, when we went to visit his cathedral in Assisi, and more modern and regional to my own concerns than Pushkin is to Mother Russia, and better to read in his home country than even Whitman 
in America, of whom he was a fan. The prison time, the exile and the exodus, the quote from the Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and he was the greatest in any language, better than T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, and every drunken pink-lipped boy who ever thought that booze was the secret to a poem. Bobby Burns, born Chilean, Spanish with a Bruges. Skiers. I rode the small gilded elevator at Portillo with the legendary Austrian skier Hermann Mayer one year and wanted to tell him how I was reading his book, The Race of My Life, and how glad I was that he was on the World Cup again after nearly severing his leg when a car hit him on a motorcycle. But instead, we just shook hands and said hello. I saw the old movie about Portillo, the secret race, riding the stationary bicycle in every morning before the other drunks were up, and really everyone but the racers because the snow was still so cold. Pepe Stiegler was in it, the gold medalist and Austrian Alpine knot who began to set the standard of famous skiers linked with certain ski areas when he took over the ski school at Jackson Hole. In the movie, there was a brass band and dignitaries in suits and long-haired ladies in long sweaters and stretch pants that made you wish that you were in the hotel those nights as well. It's good to be back on snow, thank you, Mayor said. And then, I'm sure, was glad to be getting off the elevator on a different floor. On that last day when almost everyone else had gone in, I was still riding the lifts and hooked up with the Viking skiing below the chair. We decided not to ski the Roca Jack because we thought it would be frozen moguls up on that part of the hill. Lower down, I had found a field of soft snow heating in the sun. Unskied powder, getting soft as boiled potatoes, where you had to traverse over cliffs when you tried not to look down, and that sense in your dreams where you start to fall off the edge of the world. It was like skiing the cold ripples of a great lake, but I was glad to take the Viking back there. And when he said he would take my picture, I was happier still. Except then he combined, you are not supposed to look right at the camera. You are a terrible model. And that was a joke for a little while, how even if I was upside down with my skis exploding off into the snow, I would still find a way to look back at the lens and give a thumbs up and smile. When we were drinking, the Viking had complained about the rich kids in Chile, the rotten class system that produced them, and how spoiled they were, breastfed until they were dead, always whining in little boy shorts for mommy to get them a happy meal. In the whole long history of the Olympics, Chile has only won one gold medal, the Viking said, pounding on the bar. In tennis, he said, doubles tennis too, and those guys were treated like gods. It was the biggest deal in the papers. I mean, who cares? He had worked for years as a model, then partnered with Little Woodward for the media company. He showed us a video of police raiding a drug manufacturing site in the Colombian jungle when the bandits regrouped and came shooting back down the hill. When the pretty Danish hostess started crying and said, this isn't good, is it? As bullets tore through the leaves, 
the Viking was stone-faced and sweating when he said, no, this is not good at all. He said even in the sports with the most individual level of entry, boxing, sprinting, table tennis, or riding a horse, life is too easy for the Chilean men to even start to strive. They are given the same jobs at the same banks and law offices where their fathers worked. And not one of them knows how to create a narrative of their own. Then he started in on the other story about the chicken and the nightstand and the by-the-hour hotels that cater to all the adulterous Chilean couples who like to mix their cuckoldry with a quick meal. I saw many of the nurturing mothers as we traveled, especially in Portillo, with tight sweaters and cascading slopes of hair and little kids running wild everywhere. A mob of blonde rugrats seemed to have staked at our end of the hotel playing tag and screaming, with one boy dry-humping a mattress that had been pulled out into the hall. When I mentioned it to Ellen Purcell, she told me, oh, they must be Brazilian. The Argentines have asked if we could have a separate wing for the families from Brazil. Valle Nevado. I had picked up a small notebook in Salt Lake City a month before. A black composition book, pocket size, and I wrote Ski Chile, a tour guide on the cover. At first, it was filled with names of mountains and chairlifts and food and bars and short descriptions about how the world looked outside the window. There are some paragraphs about being drunk in a strange place, laughing all day and how good that can feel. But when Marshall got hurt, that narrative turned and I realized which story I had to tell. For a few weeks, I found that writing in that notebook was the only thing I wanted to do. Whether it was on the plane or in my living room back home with the summer sun moving across the yard. I began filling pages faster than I ever had before, between five and 10 pages a day, before the memories washed away. And in two weeks, the book was filled. The web post stopped though. This was the last story I posted about Chile on the ski press site. At that time, I'd still plan to write at least two or three more. Chile, Valle Nevado, and the top of the world. Valle Nevado, Chile. The road to Valle Nevado is not something you would want to drive after a big breakfast or with a hangover or with any tendency towards vertigo. That is mostly due to the endless Harpen Curvis, well-marked and numbered should you lose count somewhere after the 25th or 30th time that the driver drops back into the first year and gives you another 180 degree change of view. But there are also steep, sheer slopes that fall away farther than you can see. The mountain ponies that randomly cross your path and the conspicuous lack of any guardrails. Matt Hansen from Powder says, the least you can do is put up a couple big stones. We all lose counts somewhere past 60 curvas, and none of us wear seatbelts because our first goal would be to exit the van should anything happen as quickly as possible. And we all enjoy the same awe-filled intake of breath at the first sight of the bear softly rounded slopes of Valle Nevado. 
Wow, I say, and think that ski here will be like running our boards down the cold chalked skin of an endless array of alabaster nudes. Just 90 minutes outside of Santiago, it feels as if we made an ascension from the metropolis to the moon. Buenos dias, says the bellman, who helps us out of the van like a passenger from a wave-tossed boat. Welcome to Valle Nevado and Puerta del Sol. The doorway to the sun is the name of the hotel. The Incas believed this place was holy and that high peaks where the wind swirls and sprays snow were as close as they could ever get to the gods. On the summit of Cerro El Polmo, at over 16,000 feet, climbers found the mummified body of an Incan boy in 1954, an offering to the heavens in the high, dry air the body hardly aged over more than 500 years. The whole religion was based on the sun, and that's why they went to the highest place they could find. Theo Mianres tells me, pointing to the top of El Polmo from Tres Puentas Peak, with the longest pomo I've ever ridden led us off at the top of the world. Mainers is the owner and operator of Alaska Rendezvous Lodge Incorporated and Heli Ski Guides, and was an important mentor to me as a ski instructor in Jackson Hole. Seeing him here, drinking Pisco Sours in the hotel bar, is one of those welcome surprises I've come to expect from skiing in Chile. I'm taking my kids to every place that ever inspired me as a skier, he explains. And he used to work at El Colorado across the valley on snow control. Beyond that, there are sweeping steeps of La Parva, where the North Face South American Free Skiing Championships are opening the competitive extreme skiing circuit for the year. But for now, the slopes below us have been closed for the past three days because of heavy winds and snow. And I think that if the Inca had been skiers, they would know that you can find heaven going downhill too. Teddy. It was so cool to see Theo drinking Pisco Sours in the hotel bar. He gave me a big hug and we sat back down and ordered another round, immediately continuing some conversation that started 15 years before. His daughter Alexandra was with him, 20-something, bright-eyed, and somehow different each time I saw her, so that twice I wondered if she was the same person. Her blonde hair was out around her shoulders, or tucked behind her hat, and there was a more knowing smile. She had just placed an article in the American Avalanche Association Avalanche Review. It's for snow geeks, she laughed. And I imagine the catalog of Gandalf-clad cloud guessers, aerographic athletes, and snow pit digging wonder boys that she must know. I spent more than a year in New York, she said, as if in defense of all those powder bumpkins. In Manhattan, I think, she said she was an intern for Vogue. She said in her author's bio, my favorite shoes are high heels and ski boots. Theo's son Aiden showed up too, with an unshaven blonde face. He was a long way from the little guy I remember someone pointing out in a ski school class years ago, saying that's Teddy's boy. South America with the family. Theo grinned with his big space teeth, obviously pleased with who they were. After a couple of days, we'll go to Portillo and say hello to the Purcells. Other than my father, Theo taught me more about skiing than anyone I know. 
when he watched me ski Bert's bull in Jackson in the open cliff area where the powder piles, he said, your skiing has really improved, but you don't have to be so heavy and muscular in your turns anymore. You can be lighter now. And I thought about that forever, about not fighting the mountain and trying to soar more like a bird. I sent a picture of the two of us with all the fresh powder in the backdrop to my best ski buddy from those Jackson days. And he wrote back, I always talk about Theo saying, ski what's in front of you, never traverse. That's the way you learn to handle it all. We had our differences though. In front of a class I was teaching, he skied up and said I was skiing too fast. I told him to mind his own business and in the locker room, two supervisors had to pull us apart. When I wrote about poaching Jackson's backcountry in, in Kolur magazine, Theo somehow found my parents' phone number in Denver long after I had moved to New Mexico and left a message about how disappointed we all are. I never met him, Hanson said after I introduced them at the bar, but I definitely heard of him before. When I saw Theo again after I left Wyoming, it was in the Hard Rock Bar during the Las Vegas ski trade show. The grudge was gone in a minute as I went to tell him how I'm still learning from the things he told me up on the hill. Then we got drunk together, and I had that feeling when you're friends again with someone you fought with, how that's the stronger deal. In 2012, maybe a year after Marshall died, Theo fell to his death off an escalator in Anchorage during the International Snow Science Workshop. Alexandra took over the heli skiing operation. When I sent her a condolence note, she replied, I remember meeting and talking with you at length in South America. And I remember you and Theo talking about something and laughing hard. Another friend who had been to the Anchorage Convention Center wrote, The escalator freaked me out. Pia. Pia was a local instructor who took Matt, the marshal, and me out in a blizzard the first day on the hill. She had a house down in Ferralones where the road split between Valle Nevado and La Parva, a farmhouse. I imagine with a huge fireplace and walls of stone. She said her husband and the kids came up from Santiago on the weekends and sometimes her sister and their families as well. Her heritage was Basque, but her family had been Chilean for decades. She had brown eyes and that permanent tan of someone who lives outdoors. She skied us around when the snow was pounding so hard we couldn't see our feet and there wasn't a tree on the hill. She asked, are you the kind of Americans that need to stop for a Coke? Even though I thought a coffee sounded good, we said no. Some seven runs later, we did stop in the mid-mountain lodge where we met a guy from Colorado who was working on ski patrol. Then we rode the chair with a girl from the US who was working on trail crew. She says she and the guy were the only two Americans and it was funny, they were the first people we talked to. She lived in the housing complex just below the hotels, where there was ping pong and foosball and beer with 60 cents a pour. She got $4.50 an hour and hardly had to pay for anything else. She invited us to come down to play some ping pong because employees weren't allowed in the hotels. You guys should check it out, she said, for your story. Hansen said, we probably will. Then we were skiing again speeding through plushing flurries with the sound of popped styrofoam. When the sun began to appear like a blob of melting butter, my heart dropped because it might be over. I wanted it to snow all night, 
and into the morning, too. Come on, clouds, don't stop now. And they didn't. Weaving back together to spit pellets like confetti that clung to our coats. To wrap the dimensions and colors into a shrink wrap of gray light through which we moved. The snow felt like soft moss underfoot. Like a cold sponge giving way at 30 miles per hour. I said to the marshal, this is so cool. It's beautiful, the marshal said. I was starting to wonder if we were going to find this good a snow. Pia was always ahead, and we tried to follow how her body reacted to the hill. Her shoulders were as relaxed as a tree in the breeze. Her accent was smoky and clear. Her laugh filled the air. I like to feel the edge of the ski, she said on the chair. You get these skis too fat sometimes and never quite feel like you're in control. We buried our chins in the collars of our coats. We swung our legs because our feet were getting cold. And at the top of the Andes Express, we skated around the back of the knoll to drop into a little bull named Olympia, skiing through a rolling field of frozen clouds. The marshal smiled. We're the first ones here. We stopped for steaming bowls of soup, hot meat, and tea, then went out in the afternoon on our own, floating through the mountain above a perfect ridge of powder as for a moment the sun broke through. Then off to Valle de Incas Poma, where we rode untouched snow we could hardly see but could certainly feel. The second time up, the Poma broke, and after a couple minutes getting covered in the storm, we skied back down the lift line, and they brought a snowmobile to tow us up to the road. He would have preferred a fiver, the marshal said when I tipped the driver with a couple yin-yang stickers I had made that said, shred white and blue. We knew what morning would bring. We had scouted the peak where Jack got behind me with a camera for those first powder turns, and it was smooth, but not as deep as we had hoped. And I suddenly hit the catwalk just when I thought, I had another turn to go. Huevos a la Española. In the morning, the mountain looked like the chalk surface of a series of frozen sand dunes. There wasn't a cloud. Everything was brilliant and blue, and we hurried through the coffee, Huevos de a la Española over easy, with the crispy eggs cooked in oil, a little fruit, and some buttered toast. I didn't even care that I was hungover because I knew the snow would provide the instant cure. There was a minute in the room when I worried how dehydrated I might be, when I checked the batteries as I put on my avalanche transceiver. But then the good memories were coming back of all the great days so far, how everything was completely taken care of and I didn't have a worry in the world. Like at Tio Bob's in Portillo on the deck above the lake of the Incas when I decided I could live on steak and pisco sours, or in Termas when the sun on the soft ridge where you could see the whole world below, Matt took photos of all the sexy rocks, so black and volcanic and erotically smooth. How the day, today, was about discovering the fruits of the storm and the gold light blinking off the snow. Skiing over Tres Puentas was the best feeling of the year. I was kind of dizzy with the coffee at the Poma and excited that the only people who had skied there were ski patrol the three of us, then Theo and his crew. All morning, whipping down those runs with the snow blowing up and away, 
pulling farther out across the little lakes of powder until the crowds began coming across the valley because it was so easy to see our tracks from the chairs. That daily love of the mountains too. Of your body going up and down the slopes until you couldn't do it anymore. Then drinking beer and letting it all fade out through your legs like it was sinking down towards the sea. Still some 18 or 19 hours before the marshal hit the catwalk on the other hill. At Apres that last night, La Femme was pissed we hadn't waited for her. Somehow I got the rap, but the other guys had been just as ready to roll, taking photos on the chair of the snow all uncut and crystal pure. The Viking had gone back to the apartment in Santiago, so she ended up riding with El Blanco, who after two or three runs went back to the hotel. He said, I just wanted to give you a heads up is all. She's waiting to tell me about it. She kept her eyes nice and even, and her explanation was logical and clear, which made me realize how mad she was. And I bought her a Pisco Sour as a peace offering, but I couldn't tell how long she would be sore. So, no friends on a powder day? Well, I don't know if that's really fair. The next day, we were all waiting for her. The three skiing guys like retinue laughing with Pia on the little slope above the chairs. It had been one of the quieter nights, the last night on the slopes, to the French place for dinner, steak and wine, then the empty disco in the cheaper of the three hotels on the plateau, where we toured on the bunk-style rooms for three or four buddies to shred on the budget and spend money on beer. Where are all the partiers? Didn't we see the same band in Portillo? El Blanco and I took our drinks to a computer loft up a half flight of stairs. Some people in his company were trying to fuck with him in a way that he hadn't experienced before, and we played pretend corporate media raiders sipping our cocktails in soft chairs. Ah, the guru. I said, I just think that you're doing something really cool. We found a couple more ways to say the same thing and went back to the disco where La Femme said, I thought you guys left an hour ago. I did leave then to pack my bags because we had to be out early. Every room was booked for the following day. The waiter said the whole world was coming up from Santiago for the weekend and that the big storm had been a forecast for Saturday and it was a shame we couldn't stay one more day. The Catwalk On the chairs, it was cold and windy with the first sign of the new storm. My heart wasn't really in it from the start, especially after La Femme said we should just hit the sauna then drive down to Santiago. So we had it in our minds and probably our bodies to do just enough to let ourselves know we had been out there tasting the cold. I can't remember if the marshal wanted to keep skiing because the snow was still mostly untouched and Hansen was fired up right after the first run to stay out for a few. He wanted to ski that little shoulder below the peak where he had filmed the marshal and me the day before and was already warping away, free healing down to the chair. La Femme was behind us and it was just me and the marshal standing out there in the bowl and he was a little bit further up the hill. I think I was already watching as he started to ski or I turned around just in time to see him drop off that little ledge and hit the catwalk going full speed so that as soon as I heard the air going out of him I knew something had changed pretty seriously. Why I thought he had dislocated his shoulder, I can't explain for sure. It was another 10 minutes 
It felt like 30 before La Femme came up on the chair and saw the marshal and me and his skis and a cross above us on the hill. Then Hansen, then the ski patrol, who stabilized Frank and put him in the toboggan, then took him down to the clinic. We had talked a little while we waited, and I sent some hopeful thoughts up into the air. But then he seemed to want to go someplace by himself and never moved. I put Frank's skis over my shoulder and followed the patrollers. I don't know when I've concentrated so much on how good my turns felt, especially on groomed snow. Maybe because I knew I wouldn't ski for several months or because I was thinking about how quickly it can all be taken away from you. The clinic was a little building at the edge of the resort with a helicopter pad and open slopes falling away back down to the city far below. There was nobody at the reception when Matt and I walked in or in the hall and the patrollers and a doctor were in the back with the marshal in the open receiving room with two beds and curtains, an x-ray machine and splints and crushes everywhere. They had already stretched the marshal out on the bed to wait for the helicopter to stabilize him and prepare him for where he would go. Hey, it's us, man. Just take it easy, bro. Everything's gonna be cool. We stood there wondering what else we could do or say, if you have been there, you know. When we walked back outside, other people were starting to arrive in a van that pulled up and waited as some nurse got out and more patrolmen had come down the hill. I'm not sure I can call his wife yet, Lafemme said. Not until I have something that I know for sure. She and Matt smoked cigarettes, and she hugged herself against the cold. She decided, I'll call her after they get him in the helicopter, and we know where they are taking him for sure. She went up to the hotel to tell the news to El Blanco so everyone would get ready to go. Someone asked her to find the marshal's passport from the bag in the luggage room, and it surprised me to think some new world he was about to enter that he would need identification for. I walked up past the snowcat shed to stare at the mountains and be quiet for a minute or two. Then I suddenly felt compelled to hurry back into the clinic through reception and down the hall into the big open room where they had Frank on the stretcher. He was on a ventilator and his shirt was gone. If I had planned to press his hand or send him off with some little blessing, I'm not really sure. All I know is that the nurse in pink scrubs came at me as soon as I walked into the room and said in perfect English, I'm going to have to ask you to go. El Clinico. We could hear the helicopter coming up the valley from the reverberating wash of the rotors beating against the hills. There are such big black peaks there on top of the world with an endless view. We could finally see it. People took pictures. They held onto their hats and cleared away from the pad. And there was an expectation of some new level of professionalism, of things passing out of our hands and how we were able to be left alone. It sat down gliding on the pad in the buzzing stillness of the slower spinning rotors until the techs came out the doors. They were wheeling Frank out, holding up the bags of fluid that were dripping into him and we yelled out some cheers. You're going to be fine. Yeah, dude. There's room for the marshal, the two attendants, and the pilot. And as they lifted off, we sank into silent stairs. I hugged two of the ski patrollers who helped bring him off the hill. Then we gathered up our skis 
and Frank skis and threw them in the back of the little pickup the marketing lady and a young dude with a patchy beard had driven down from the hotel. I rode in the bed because I was still trying not to cry and wanted to be alone. At the hotel, something came over the marketing lady's radio and she seemed to think we had tried to steal someone's gear because we had mistakenly taken one of the patroller's ski poles. She watched us as we got out of the truck and asked, are you sure everything else is yours? Lafemme called the Viking on the way to the hospital and he was waiting for us there. There was a moment when we all kind of looked at each other. Then one by one, all went in to stand by Frank's side and tell him how certain we were that he would completely recover. As sad as it was standing beside his bed with his body restricted the splints and pads and blinking, pumping machines, it still felt kind of hopeful. I don't know why. There was just this feeling that in a couple months we would be together again, having beers. Which was when the marshal said something else to me, but I think it was just for the two of us to share. The other guys in La Femme were in the waiting room with the hand sanitizer and Kleenex and three little rows of chairs. After we had all made the visit to Frank's room, we went out of the emergency vehicle parking lot, stood in a kind of makeshift circle and made a pledge that all of us, especially the marshal, would be back together for a reunion soon. The Viking led us in a mantra that said, here's to the marshal, he's going to be okay. Here's to the marshal, he's going to be okay. And he looked into our eyes to make it real, saying it to each of us individually, then having us repeat it back to him. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Every one of us believed it was true. Then the van took El Blanco to the airport and dropped Matt and me off at the Meridiano Sorpetit Hotel along the way. We dropped our bags on the curb as it started to rain, bringing in the storm that we knew was already snowing in Valle Novado. There was a buzzer you pressed to open the gate and Neruda poems were painted in Spanish and English on the walls. It was a petite hotel with white walls and tidy white rooms. We left our skis in a closet behind the front desk and I was given the keys to one of the two rooms downstairs. I dropped my bags and backpack on the floor then opened the window and lay down on top of the sheets and my clothes trying to unbelieve what I knew was real. The Southern Mentality. When Matt rang down from the desk, it was like being called back out into the world. The sunset was coming in through the courtyard window, the sound of evening traffic, and the smell of the cool spring air. I'm upstairs. I'll be right there. We wore our ski coats because of the rain. On the avenue, I thought about what it would be like if this were our home. The girl selling tickets at the subway smiled because she could tell right away what English-speaking dorks we were. She sold us the Tobalo, which I thought was the beer Matt liked drinking and wondered if Tobalo can mean a ticket to getting drunk as well. The beer is called Torobayo, Matt said. Tobalo is where we get off the subway. Oh, I liked being on the train. So obviously blonde and tall and thought about how the writer Richard Brotigan described being in Tokyo in the 1970s, like being a great 
big yellow banana to walk through the city breathing out onto the streets at the beginning of a Saturday night and only have to find the grocery store on the corner and right behind it, the bar. That was easy. There were people smoking on the patio, wearing sweaters and rain jackets, and inside the yellow lighting and European and American boozers at one expatriate outpost with photographs of European soccer players, American movie stars, and retro beer advertisements on the wall. As Hansen and I sat down to order Escudo, I realized it was Queen again on the stereo. Bicycle, champions, fat bottom girls. We met a Brit who was one of the biggest people I've ever seen. Maybe six foot seven and wide too. When he talked, I had to lean back and look up, but he was gentle giant who spoke reverently about the southern mentality of Chile, the fishing trips he led, how he caught a 22 kilo salmon and doesn't know why everyone wants to charge a thousand dollars when he just charges 150 a day. Sometimes when I am lost with the night coming on, I just knock on a door and people take me in and feed me and treat me like a king, he said. That is southern mentality. Hansen, who likes to fish as much as he likes to ski, thinks he might come back for a story and hire the big guy to guide. Pugwash69 is the Brit's email. Then the Viking showed up wearing a white shirt and a brown scarf. He had shaved, told us we should go way out front for his wife to show up with the car. Maria Bella. The Viking's wife was named Linda. She was sharp-featured, small Chilean women in a black turtleneck sweater in a black Jeep Liberty with her hair pulled back and some kids' toys in the trunk like any middle-class mother anywhere. She didn't seem happy to see us, and when Matt tried to sit in the very back to be polite, I guess it made her very annoyed. I thought about how my own wife would react, called out of the house to drink with her husband's new friends, and by the time you meet them, they are already half in the bottle. Aki, she said to Matt, pointing next to me, sitting straight and still in the middle of the car. She did not say por favor. The Viking kept telling her how well she was driving and how she looked so beautiful. She did, and it was funny to see him doing anything not to start a fight like any married man would do. A friend of his, another expatriate, Dane, who had fallen in love with Santiago, wanted us to stop by for a drink. He lived in the high-rise apartments and wanted us to taste some of the full-bodied Chilean wines he was exporting around the world. The girls are still getting ready. The Vikings friend smiled as we got off the elevator. It could be 10 minutes or it could be two hours. He poured us wine and took us out on the patio to see the view. With each sip, I could feel my buzz start to grow. I was tired and hungry, still not believing what had happened. And I walked around the little living room and looked at every picture of his wife on the wall. Then Janet came out of the bedroom. She seemed to radiate with a wide glow, her face both Asian and equatorial, both native and from another world. Hola, she said, and extended a dark, slender arm. She was from Peru. In perfect English, she asked, How do you like the wine? She owned the room, her eyes so alive at dinner, when we were pouring down all the Pisco sours, as hungry and drunk as we would get and her husband sat and glared. What are you thinking right now? Her friend Maria Bella was from Colombia, 
in a white t-shirt that clung to her lucid skin, hourglass jeans, and high heels. She was recently single, which I found hard to believe. She was charming and beautiful. I felt like the whole world had come unmoored as I tried to find something interesting to tell her without actually going into detail about the day. Maria Bella, she gently corrected, with her eyes like the cat at the door. I remember how she pursed her lips at the restaurant when she ate that hot pepper from a plate we all shared at the best table in the center of the best restaurant with the bright pink and blue paintings like frescoes and the way when the waiter had seen the Viking walk in had rushed us right there. They had brought us drinks and bread right away and we had been introduced all around and felt like we were on the little stage and then as we looked through the 20 page menu of seafood and steak, all the other tables around us seemed to disappear. Janet's husband said she should order. It was a Peruvian restaurant after all, and she went through the pages describing all the things I would love to keep eating, the fish and beef and some light cheesy side dish, her dark eyes shining as she said of the beef. I would make you this at home. Hanson and I kept looking at each other, it all seemed so surreal. The marshal's accident, the clinic, and the hospital, and the big Brit at the bar. And now, to be sitting with beautiful people middle of South America, all in the matter of a few hours. We were so grateful. Matt and I paid the bill, some several thousand pesos, and I think it was only $125 each on our credit cards. That made Janet's husband kind of sore. But we told him that it wasn't like that and we would be more than happy to let him buy the drinks across the street at the disco. I don't dance, but I'd love to sit at the bar. There was a still light rain, warm with September spring. It tapped on the cobblestone outside the disco with the big blue doors. We could see the pulsing lights, the music beginning to beat in our ears, inside like Versailles with white columns, tan walls, and sparkling people everywhere. As Matt leaned over and said, Man, I think we are dropping down the rabbit hole. Santiago. In the morning, I was the first person in the dining room downstairs. I just wanted coffee, toast, and some fruit, even though the bright-eyed lady in the kitchen said she could cook me anything. I said, no gracias. And all day, I regretted not having pancakes or huevos a la española once more. We were scheduled to fly out at 9 p.m. Flight to Los Angeles. I could hear the buzzer upstairs from someone at the gate, then the heavy front door. An American couple came down wearing suits on a Saturday, all polished and shiny, and with a nervous energy like they didn't want to sit still. After I looked at him, I forgot he was there. But she was more peculiar, with shoulder-length hair and a twitch like a sparrow. She spoke Spanish with a flat, accentless sound and a little smile like she liked what she heard. She made me feel uncomfortable, like a missionary or someone who thinks they have already learned everything they ever need to know. Then she got on her phone and chirped. We're here. I was relieved when Jack came down with the same hangover smile, desperate for coffee, then just happy to sit and hold onto his cup for a while. It was raining as we walked up St. Patrice Street to the corner Mercado. 
where they were making fresh salsa, empanadas, and stew, and the meat and fish and fruit counters were busy with all new food. I thought if I had lived there, I would go to the Mercado every Saturday to shop and drink coffee and watch people everywhere. We took a taxi to the tented bazaar where Matt bought wooden bowls and we both bought earrings for our girls, kind of goofy in that moment to be so grateful to be in love with someone we were going to see back home. I bought a red t-shirt that said Chile with Condorito on it, the cartoon Condor of Chile and the dark haired senorita in a frilly dress whom he was asking to dance. I thought she looked like Maria Bella with the black eyelashes over her dark eyes. The rain was misting as we walked around the place across the street, rising up into the clouds. It looked like something from Russia with all its buttresses and spires and the leafless trees with wet bark and the dripping pines. But other than native tchotchke shop with serapes, the native whistles, and the guard in the blue uniform behind the green gate, it looked as if the whole building was empty, like you could get lost there for weeks running up the grand staircase and hallway and lost rooms where nobody had slept or dusted for years. Maybe it's open in the summer. Yeah, that's weird. We walked past a couple making out in the park, the dogs sniffing each other, at every corner and the curly haired one, like Benji, sleeping on sawdust outside the electronics store. It would be nice to feel that confident to sleep right there. On the subway, we got lost. We ended up walking around a military college where there was a festival with banners and bands and big obstacle courses. We stood against the fence and watched soldiers parading by and started to talk about the sad things we knew. I told Jack my father was dying of Alzheimer's like his mother before, and he told me about who was sick in his family too. It's just hard sometimes is all. Checking in at the airport, the marshal, Matt, and I were on the same confirmation number. The smiling young lady in the blue skirt suit at the counter looked behind us to some distant place to nod and politely inquire. And Mr. Frank, is he not here? On the plane, Matt said, I keep thinking the same thing too. Matt brought the marshal's skis back to California to mail them to him when he got home. That unresolved sense of everything, like how we were already fading apart at the immigration counter with our bags as we hugged goodbye, just becoming those people about to go back to what they do. I'll drop you a line if I get any news. Yeah, me too. Epilogue. There is so much more story here to tell that to call this an epilogue isn't quite fair. Of how it took weeks for Frank to come back to America, first on a plane to a rehabilitation center in Florida, after one of his sons, Matt Long, went down to Chile to bring him home, and then in the months that followed of the impact he had on those of us who traveled with him and even now. Those first weeks when everyone else was sitting on the porch and petting their dog, drinking their beer from their own refrigerator while he was lying motionless in the dark in a hospital room in South America. Hala Femme would send little email updates like the time his legs had started to move, how the weather and the plans continued to change. When he finally got back to Utah, we shared a phone call. 
I can't remember if we were on the speaker or if Frank's wife held the phone. He told me about his journey and then about the story he wanted to tell. Some poetry in his mind about the promise of fresh snow and open roads, but that as far as Chile, how Hanson and I would need to help him fill in a detail or two. There was the loneliness of not having the rest of the crew to talk to, like that first magic summer camp that keeps getting longer ago. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Switzerland, the 2010 Olympics, a long week in Montana, then another year still to come before the April, when I was at the cliff ledge at Snowbird, Frank's mountain to me, and Matt Long called. I was standing on the balcony above the cliff lodge atrium, looking up at the mountain's blue and white beauty bursting through the windows as Matt told me they were taking Frank off life support. As I held the phone to his ear, I watched another local skier arc his way down the high steep of Silver Fox, and I said to Frank, I can see you now. You've got a perfect line. Ski Chile, written by Peter Cray. The Mountain Gazette Library is produced and hosted by me, John Boostar. For more, head over to mountaingazette.com slash subscribe today and pick up a subscription to the magazine. This podcast is executive produced by Mike Rogge, marketing by Austin Holt, produced by Connor Sedmak, social media by Amy Doran, and public relations by Ryan Rowe. No part of this podcast may be reproduced without written permission from Mountain Gazette and its parent company, Verb Cabin, LLC. 